Good morning and God bless you everyone. Can everyone hear me? Good? Can everybody hear me? I got my Janet Jackson on today. Bless God. Um, I just like to start. <laughs> I asked him not to do this. I asked him not to clown. I asked him. I just want to give thanks to God Almighty for giving me this opportunity and placing it in pastor and elders in the minister's hearts to allow me to share with you on Mother's Day. Um, sorry, pastor couldn't be here and pastor sends his love. Um, he emailed me yesterday. So I just want to thank all of you for giving me the opportunity to share this word with you today. So I want to start off with a joke. Dante gave me the joke, so if you don't like it. <laughs> so there was a woman on death row. I know a little morbid, it's Mother's Day, but there was a woman on death row. And the night before her execution, the prison guard comes to her and he asks her, what do you want to eat for your last meal? And she looks at him and she says, I don't know, what do you want to eat? All right, all right. Where's the drummer when I need him? Listen, I know the, the joke was corny. I, to, I told you. The joke is corny and it's a little ridiculous, but it brings across a point that as women, we're always doing for everybody else. We're always putting other people's needs ahead of our own, which brings me to the title of today's message, which is All is Well. This, this um, word is about a woman who, like a lot of us, even though it appears that she has it all and um, she's living her life and she's doing her, she has a deep unmet, net, un unmet need, I'm sorry. And it takes God's intervention to sort of bring that to light and set her free and deliver her. So um, we're going to begin by reading of the word and then I'll let you guys sit down. It's going to be from 2 Kings 4 verses 8 through 16, if you'll just be patient. While they put it up on the screen, Mike. It'll be up on the screen soon, so I'll just start reading it. Now it happened one day that Elisha the prophet went to Shunem, where there was a notable woman, and she persuaded him to come to her house to eat some food. So it was, as often as he passed by, that he would turn in there to eat some food. And she said to her husband one day, Look now, I know this is a holy man of God who passes by us regularly. Please let us make an upper room for him on the wall, and let us put a bed there for him, and a table, and a chair, and a lampstand. So it will be whenever he comes to us, he can turn in there. And it happened one day that he came there, and he turned into the upper room and laid down. Then he said to Gehazi, his servant, Call this Shunammite woman. And when he had called her, she stood before him. And, he, and um, he said to him, meaning Gehazi, Say now to her, Look, you have been concerned with us for all this, you've been concerned for us with all this care. What can I do for you? She answered, Well, he said, Do you want me to speak on, behalf, on your behalf with the king, with the commander of the army? And she answered, I dwell amongst my own people. So he said, what then is to be done for her? And Gehazi answered and said, actually, she has no son and her husband's old. So he said, call her. And when he had called her, she stood in the doorway. Then he said, 
to her, about this time next year, you shall embrace a son. And she said, no, my Lord, man of God, do not lie to your maidservant. Let's pray. Father, in the name of Jesus, we just bless you and we thank you, Father. I thank you for all these people, Lord God. I thank you that their hearts and their minds and their ears are attentive to your word and to receive what you have for them today. Lord God, let me decrease that you may increase. Use me, Lord, to be your vessel in this hour, Father God. We give you all the praise, honor, and glory in Jesus' name. You can have a seat. So who is this Shunammite woman? The Bible describes her as notable in verse 8. And I looked up what notable meant because I didn't necessarily know or I wasn't sure. And it says unusual, worth noticing, very successful or respected, remarkable, distinguished, wealthy, or prominent. So she's achieved a certain status in her community. And how do we know that takes a lot of work? Um, That takes having a certain kind of personality, a certain... um, uh, get-to-itiveness, uh, go out and get what you need, how you need it, making friends, socializing, working hard, and making a good impression on people. She put her status in the community was something she took pride in, and it required a lot of work. It also says in verse 10 that she was a woman of faith. How do we know this? Because she sanctified a place in her home for the man of God. She recognized him as a holy person, and she made it so that he would be comfortable every time he passed by her town. She set the tone for her home, right? And we do that as women. We set the tone for our homes. Our husbands and boyfriends and whatever, they do what they have to do, but we're the ones, more or less, that is in charge of making sure everybody's happy at home, making sure everything is right, and making sure everyone's comfortable. When we have guests, it's our job to make them feel comfortable. Amen? It also says that she was persuasive. She got the man of God. She saw him walking by her house however many times a month, and she persuades him to come into her house, right? That's not an easy thing to do. Women don't just go around talking to men, grabbing them and pulling them into their house. At least they shouldn't be. <laughs> if any of you are doing that, please stop, okay? <laughs> but she was able, through her words and her manner, to get this man to come stay in, his house, in her house. And back then, the prophets were loners. They stayed very far outside the city limits. They weren't really accessible or approachable to many people. So it says something about her that he was willing to come stay in her house. Amen? She was persuasive. It also, she also urged her husband and persuaded her husband to build a whole other wing to their house, if you can imagine. And we know men, right? That's not the easiest thing to do. They can't even, you can't even ask them to fix a plumbing or a pipe. It turns into a production. No offense. So she persuaded her husband to build him, like build a whole other side to the house so that the man of God could be there comfortable. So we know she was persuasive. So she wasn't shy. It also says that she was well-to-do. She was influential in the town. She had her house. She had her things. And now she even had the man of God living in her house, right? That's like having T.D. Jakes or Joyce Myers come and stay in your house every time they're in town. That would be awesome, right? That's how she had it. She had everything. She couldn't ask for anything more. Looks like she had it all but, right? If we look at verse 15, it says, She had no son, and her husband is old. 
right? And we know that when God puts something in the Bible, he's drawing attention to it for a reason. So what difference does it make if you have everything in the world, all the tangible things, you're popular, you have friends, you have family, you've established yourself, you've reached a certain point in your life, but you don't have the one thing you really want, right? Could it be that that's why she was so influential and notable? Because she was trying to make up for a void in her life, so she tried to be everything to everyone. She tried to keep up appearances. She tried to keep herself busy. That's often what we do, right? To avoid the gap, avoid the thing that we feel like is making us imperfect, right? That one thing that we don't have. That also could be why she had no hope because she had no son. How would someone describe you if they saw you in your place of deepest need? Not the you we see in church, not the you on Facebook, not the you on Instagram or Twitter, but the real you, the thing that you don't even like to think about anymore, the thing that when you go to bed at night, it's always there like something nagging behind you. How would it look to other people? What words would we use to describe you? She was influential. She was a woman of faith. But she was barren and had no, and her husband was old. That's how Gehazi described her to the man of God, right? But she's good, right? Verse 13, she says, when the man of God asks her what she wants, she says, I dwell amongst my own people, right? That's not what he asked her. He asked her, what do you want, right? This was the oracle, the man of God, coming up to her and saying, what do you want? That's like Elder telling me, Cynthia, we got an extra million dollars in the budget. What do you want? Pastor wants me to bless you with something. And me saying, I'm good. I'm good. No, that's not what I would say. In case you were wondering. I'm just saying. She said, I dwell amongst my own people. And in our language today, that means I'm good. I have my house. I have my family. Everybody in this town knows me. I'm straight. Right? That's what she was saying. Like I was good last year when the ground got ripped out from under me. I thought I was good. I lost the love of my life, and I still thought I was good. But what God showed me was that I wasn't good. And I hadn't been good for a long time before the man came in and out of my life. I had been suppressing. I had been ignoring this need that I had, this need for companionship, this need for a husband, whatever it is, right? Because that's hard to admit. I'm a woman of a certain age. I'm a lawyer. I raised a great kid. I got great parents, great family. I'm in ministry. I have my own ministry. But I didn't have that one thing, right? So I wasn't good. I thought I was good, but year after year, disappointment after disappointment, it takes a toll. And it wasn't like I was hopeless about everything in my life. I really believed and I thought I was good. I have everything. What could I be complaining of? I had my ministry, my career, my degrees, my friends, my family, you name it, I did it to keep busy. And all those things are good. Right? All those things are good. There's nothing wrong with getting degrees and advancing in your job and having friends and being involved in ministry. But how many of you know you can't suppress and deny your deepest needs for very long? So what situation have you lost hope about? 
What situation in your life is taking too long to manifest? Or worse, it looks like it's dead. Maybe you're not barren, maybe you're not single, but maybe you're perpetually in debt. Maybe you're sick. Maybe you have no education. Maybe you're married but unhappy. Maybe you're stuck in a dead-end job, or worse yet, have no job at all. If any of those situations in our lives last too long, it can make you lose hope. Lose hope that that situation will ever change. Year after year after year, you're believing God for certain things and they just don't happen. So was she lying when she said all is well? Was I? Are you? No. But if we say something to ourselves enough, we begin to believe it and we begin acting like all is well. Acting, right? Then God allows someone or something to come along and it kicks up all those feelings, right? Maybe your best friend gets pregnant and you've been trying to get pregnant for 15 years. Your best friend, boom, right out the box. She gets married, she has a baby six months later, right? Or maybe a colleague of yours gets that promotion you wanted that you've been killing yourself to get. It happens, right? And then all of a sudden, you're unhappy, you're moody, you're grumpy, and you don't even know why, because you're like, I'm good. I got a good job. I got a great kid. I got this. I got that. But you're unhappy, and you don't know why, right? Because you've buried that thing so deep that you don't even know, you, didn't, you don't know that it was still even there. You didn't know that you still wanted that thing. We're always so busy trying to please everyone else and make everyone else happy that we neglect our own needs. We think that that's enough. I, I can't tell you how many times I've said, I got my family, I got my kid, I got my car, I got my job, I'm good. But those are things. Your kids grow up, they get married, they leave you. Car breaks down. Your parents, God forbid, die. Love you, Mom. <laughs> Stay alive a long time. Everybody thinks I'm a great mom. It's because she was. Praise God. But that's what we do as women. We typically deprive ourselves to make everybody else around us happy to the point where we don't even expect things. We go out and do things on our own because we just stop expecting. Even if we ask sometimes, it don't get right, it doesn't get done when we need it done. Amen? Anybody's like that, that I want it done and I want it done when I want it done? I'm all about that. I put this kid through hell this weekend because I wanted certain things, and he was like, my, you don't got time for that. We don't got time for that. I'm like, I want it done. I want it done now. And thank God he did with the help of my other sister back there. They helped me. But that's how we are as people. So in verse 15, the man of God asked her, what do you want? I dwell amongst my own people. And then she runs out the door. How do we know she runs out the door? Because two minutes later, he has to tell Gehazi, go get her back. <laughs> right? So she's like, peace, I'm, not, I'm good. No, I'm good. I'm good. And she runs out. So he has to call her back in. And then when he does call her back in, she stands at the door. Now she's not even willing to come in and speak to the man of God. She stands at the door. She doesn't want to have a conversation. Right? Any of us ever not wanting to have a conversation? Every man's hand should be up in here right now. They are the best at avoiding conversations. You want to kill a conversation real quick? Tell my man we need to talk. 
You won't see him for days. So he calls her back in. She stands at the door. She knows what's coming, right? But it's just too painful. She doesn't want to have a conversation. She doesn't want to dredge it up. She doesn't want to dredge up all the years of disappointment and hurt. All the stuff she's been ignoring and pushing down and pushing down. And can we blame her? Not being able to have children was and is a big deal. As women, we're created with the womb because we're supposed to be able to have children. Now every woman doesn't want children and that's all right. But if you do and you are unable to, it's devastating. It's devastating. I've known women in that position. It's devastating. And thank God today we have in vitro, we have, you know, different things that one can do. She didn't have that back then. If you couldn't have kids, you couldn't have kids. That was the end of the conversation. So there was no use in talking about it anymore. It became part of her identity. So it's easier to say, I'm good, all is well, than to admit the need and set ourselves up for disappointment, right? To be let down again. Can you imagine what it must have felt like month after month, week after week, year after year, no baby? You get tired of talking about it. That's like single women sometimes hate to go to weddings, right? You're sitting at the table with the eight other single women. <laughs> or worse, when you go to functions and all your tias are like, how come you're not married? Who are you seeing? What's going on? Right? It, it gets so you don't even want to go to the functions. Or if you don't have babies and you're constantly getting invited to baby showers and you're like, ay, you know, you're happy for the person. Yes, you are. But it's just another reminder, right? So then maybe you stop going to the baby shower and you just send a gift. And you send a gift and you say, oh, I had to work. Oh, I had to, right? Because it's just too much year after year going through that. You get tired of it. And people, let's be real, sometimes people can be insensitive. First thing out their mouth is asking you about your situation, right? Especially your married girlfriend. So who are you seeing? What's going on? Nobody. <laughs> Nobody. Nothing's going on. Nobody. Right? You, you try to, then you just start avoiding situations. But could that also be why some of us don't like to pray? I'm just saying, we're friends here. Everybody loves me here, right? We're afraid that if we pray and it doesn't happen, that prayer doesn't work. Or that God doesn't love us. Or that we're doing something wrong because we see everybody around us getting blessed. But not the thing we want, right? We get blessed, we have this, we have that, praise God. But not the thing, right? Exactly. James 5.16 says, the effective fervent prayers of the righteous availeth much. So that's one line down, right? Prayer works. <laughs> Hebrews 11.6 says, for he who comes to God must believe that he is and that he is a rewarder of those who diligently seek him. So God is real. Strike two. So here's my question. Why is it that we can hope and dream big for our kids, but not for ourselves? I don't understand. There's some of you, some of us, we'll kill ourselves putting our kids through school, and we're putting it, get your degree, get your degree, get your degree, but we won't. Why? 
because we've lost hope about a certain thing. We're too old, we don't have the money, whatever. There's a million reasons. But we dream big for our kids and we can't dream big for ourselves. We pray, we pray. Maybe we pray for five days. Maybe we pray for five weeks. Maybe we pray for five years and the thing doesn't happen, right? So then what do we do? We lose hope. We stop praying about the thing, right? Or we go to the place of it must be me. Then you start being super Christian. You start praying eight hours a day. You start going to every service when the doors are open. You do all the things that you think you're supposed to do to earn God's grace, but you cannot earn God's grace. God's grace is a gift. That's what grace is all about. That he gives us when we don't deserve it. He knows we're not perfect. He knows we missed the mark. He knows we don't get it. That's why it's a gift that you have to accept if you want to walk in liberty. So he blesses us when we don't deserve it. And let me let you in on a little secret. None of us deserves it. None of us is worthy or ever will be, but he's good like that. Matthew 7, 11 says, If you then, being evil, know how to give good gifts unto your children, how much more shall your Father which is in heaven give good things to them who ask him? So he wants to give us good things, amen? Sometimes it's just not the right time or the right one, or he's just trying to show you something. Habakkuk 2.3 says, The vision is for an appointed time. It describes the end and it will be fulfilled. It seems slow in coming. Wait patiently for it will surely take place. It will not be delayed. Amen? So look at her reaction. The man of God tells her, this time, verse 16, This time next year, you're going to have a kid. She says, don't lie to me. Don't lie to me. There's like an exclamation point. Don't lie to me. Don't deceive me. She's talking to the oracle of God, the very voice of God on the earth at that time, and she tells him, don't lie to me. She knew better than that, right? He's not lying. That's not a normal reaction to good news. Is it? Offer me the car. I'll tell you how I'm going to react. She won't allow herself to hope that it could really happen. I felt that same way two years ago when Stephen came back into my life. I was equal parts overjoyed and terrified. Terrified. I even asked Minister Belinda to pray for me, and I don't even know if she remembers. And I used those very words with her. I said, pray for me because I'm overjoyed and terrified. I don't want to get hurt again. And she prayed with me, thank God, because she's faithful. So I know what it felt like. I know how she feels that someone's telling you you're finally getting this thing. You don't even know how to act because you didn't, it wasn't even on your radar that this thing was even still a possibility. It's scary getting the thing you never thought you have. Fear immediately creeps into your heart. Good news turns into dread and angst and fear. Why? Because we're afraid of losing it once we get it. Or we're afraid of messing it up. Because yes, we mess things up. Right? 
or that it won't live up to our expectations. Amen? More than married folk can attest to that, right? Things are not like they were once you say, I do. Afterwards, it's hard. Marriage is hard. It's a lot of work. It's easier to become complacent and to learn to settle and live without the thing than it is to dare to dream and dream big and hope big. That's the place that I was in. I was complacent. I'd rather the thing not come back because I didn't want to get hurt. I had all these walls up. I didn't want to get hurt. I don't want to be disappointed. I don't want this. I don't want that. But God doesn't really care about what we want, right? (laughs) He does what he knows is going to help us grow. So he allows things to come into your life sometimes that upset the apple cart. So what is hope and why do we need it? I always look things up as the teacher, the bell's still remnants. Hope means to cherish a desire with anticipation, to desire with expectation of obtaining it, to expect with confidence. The Bible says that God is love and that love hopes. 1 Corinthians 13 says, love bears all things, believes all things, hopes all things, and endures all things. So you can't have love without hoping for something. And you need hope in order to have faith because without faith it's impossible to please God. Hebrews 11.1 says, now faith is the substance of things hoped for, the evidence of things not seen. So hope is the seed for faith. You cannot have faith without hope. Hope comes first. We don't even get to faith until there's something to hope for. And if you're not hoping for something bigger than yourself, you don't need faith. I don't need faith to go sit down in that chair right now. Elder would kill me, but I don't need faith to do it. I could walk across the room right now without saying, oh, God, I need faith for me to get to that chair right now. No. There's certain things we do all day long every day that don't require faith. But when you're believing God and you're hoping for bigger things, you need faith. You can't have faith without hope. Amen? Everyone got that? And God gives us hope because we need it in order to survive. Proverbs 29, 18 says, where there is no vision, the people perish. Having a vision is having hope. It's the same thing. They're synonymous. Proverbs 13 says, hope deferred makes the heart sick. But when desire comes, it is a tree of life. If it makes you sick, that's not a good thing. The lack of it. So what's the basis of our hope? Our hope is in Jesus Christ, our Lord. Psalm 39, 7 says, And now, Lord, what do I wait for? My hope is in you. God placed hope in us because we need it. Colossians 1.27 says, Christ in you is the hope of glory. So you are the hope. You're the hope for your friends. You're the hope for your kids. You're the hope for your family. You're the hope for this church. It's needed. Without hope, you have no future. Jeremiah 29 says, For I know the plans I have for you, declares the Lord. Plans to prosper you and not to harm you. Plans to give you a hope and a future. So we need hope. So how we cope with loss and disappointment determines our future. If hope is linked into our future, you have to learn how to deal with the loss of hope or when your hope gets attacked. You have to decide whether you're going to heal or stay wounded whether you're going to recover or die, whether you're going to succeed or fail, whether you're going to thrive or shrink back and become complacent about the situation. But in order for hope to work, 
You have to keep it alive because it is going to get attacked. There's adversities, there's disappointment, there's crises. Especially when your hope or dream is being threatened. You can't give up hoping. Look at verse 17 if it's still up. If not, I'll, uh, I'll read it to you. It says, but the woman conceived and bore a son when the appointed time had come of which Elijah had told her. Wonderful, right? Hallelujah. <laughs> she has her baby. This is what she wanted. This is what the man of God said. Hope restored, right? It's a good thing about hope. It goes and it comes. You have to fight to keep it. And it would be great if the story ended there, but then we wouldn't learn how to keep hope alive after it's threatened, right? So what happens? Let's read verses 18 through 20. Mike, can you put up 18 through 20? And it happens, and I'm going to try to get through it quickly. As the child grew, it happened one day that he went out to his father, to the reapers. And he said, Father, my head, my head. So he said to a servant, carry him to his mother. And when he had taken him and brought him to his mother, he sat on her knees till noon and died. Good grief. Her son dies. Her dream dies. Her hope dies. Her future dies. This is a crucial point in her life. It's a turning point, a defining moment. How she handles this crisis will determine her future. Does she go back to being hopeless? Or does she fight to keep that thing alive? She's a mother. You can assume what she did, right? If we look at verse 21, not yet. It's, yes? Amen. It says, and she went up and laid him on the bed of the man of God and shut the door upon him and went out. She placed her son on the altar, on the holy place, on the place she had sanctified to the man of God, really God himself. That's hope. She's fighting. Then she shuts the door. I found that puzzling. I think she closed the door to conceal his death because she couldn't accept it and she wasn't willing to give up. And she was believing for a miracle. And if her husband had come back in and saw that the boy was dying, lying dead in the bed, he might have went out and buried him because that was the custom back then. You buried people quick. So she didn't want that because she was still believing, right? That's hope. Verse 22. Then she called to her husband and said, Please send me one of the young men and one of the donkeys that I may run to the man of God and come back. So she asked her husband for transportation and an export, and, um, I'm sorry, an escort because she had to go to the source. She knew there was only one man who could fix this. Then verse 23, it says, so he said, why are you going to him today? It's neither the new moon or the Sabbath. And she said, it is well. You could only go to the prophet once or twice a month or a year. And the husband was like, why are you going over there? It's not, it's not the new moon or the Sabbath. So it's not the time for you to go seeking him. She said, it is well. Today she would have said, mind your business. <laughs> This was between her and God. That's hope. Also, she didn't tell her husband because 
We all know here, you tell the wrong people something, they will kill your dream. They will bury it, kill it, have a funeral, and all of that before your miracle manifests. You can't tell everyone when you're in crisis because they'll respond to the facts and not the truth. They won't stand in agreement for you. They'll tell you, girl, I could have told you he was going to do that. Right? Yeah, I know he was going to do that. I took a chance anyway. Right? That's why you can't tell everybody everything. And all she says, which is all we all should say, it is well. I'm trusting God. No matter what happens, I'm trusting God. Because he's going to keep me whether the thing works out or it doesn't work out. So in verses 24 and 25, it says, She saddled the donkey and said to her servant, Drive and go forward and do not slack the, place, the pace for me unless I tell you. Touch three people and say, Don't slack. That was for Dante. Inside joke. And so she departed and went to the man of God at Mount Carmel. So it was when the man of God saw her afar off that he said to his servant Gehazi, look, the Shunammite woman. So I love her, right? She doesn't wait for anybody. I can imagine she told her husband, go get one of the boys. And by the time she put on her shoes and got to the barn, the boy wasn't ready. The boy was eating a sandwich, pulling on his boots. I don't know what he was doing. But he was taking too long. And she said, I don't got time for this. So she saddled her own donkey. Women, again, don't do that back then. They don't do it now. Right? But this was her, right? She was influential. She was persuasive. She was a notable woman. You don't do it, I'm going to do it. That's how she was. She was desperate. She couldn't wait. She wouldn't wait. So I'm sure the boy hearing the, I don't know what sound donkeys make, but I'm sure this woman getting the thing on the donkey and trying to strap it, the donkey was making some kind of noise. And the boy comes running like, this chick is crazy. She ain't even going to wait for me. <laughs> and she was, right? She was fighting for her kid. We all can relate to that, I think. Then she gets on that donkey and travels 20 miles to Mount Carmel. I looked it up. 20 miles from Shunem to Mount Carmel. Has anyone here ever ridden a donkey? It ain't comfortable. 20 miles. She didn't care. She had to save her son. If possible, he was already dead. That's hope. Very nice, Mike. Very nice. Note to self, don't preach when Mike is on the sound. Verse 26, please run now and meet her and say to her, is it well with you? Is it well with your husband? Is it well with the child? She tells Gehazi, it is well. She didn't want to tell Gehazi. All is well. There it goes again. That's her thing, right? It is well. I'm good. She needed to go straight to the source. So she didn't want to deal with the intermediary, right? She knew only one person could do this. And just as a point of reference, Elisha had never raised anybody from the dead before. Or, or after, if I'm correct. Oh, I just told you what was going to happen. That was a novice mistake, my bad. She needed to go straight to the horse. She had no time to wait. She was too desperate. 
What's it going to take for us to be relentless with God about our needs? What he's promised you. When are we going to get desperate enough to seek him day and night until we get that thing? Verse 28. She finally gets to the man of God and she says, Did I ask a son of my Lord? Did I not say do not deceive me? So she doesn't even tell the man. She rides 20 miles on a donkey, on the back of a donkey. She doesn't even tell the man, come quick. My son, he's dead. You got to do something. That's how hurt and betrayed she was by the man of God. I've been there. When that happened to me last year, I said, Lord, I didn't ask for him. Why'd you bring him back into my life? I didn't want this. I was good. I had my activities. I was busy. Everybody loved me. I didn't need this. I didn't want this. This was the thing I was trying to avoid, getting hurt. This is what I was trying to avoid. This is why I didn't want to say. This is why I didn't ask. This is why I wasn't praying, Lord, bring that man back to me. I was not. Because I knew that man had the potential to devastate me. Like with all disappointments in life, if you really, 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 really want that thing, you know it's going to really, really hurt when you don't get it. Or when you get it and it leaves. So I know all the stuff she was going through at that moment. She was speaking out of her pain. She never said, bring back my son. She said, I asked you not to lie to me. I didn't ask for a son. I didn't ask for that. I didn't want that. My life was good. I had my friends. I had my family. I dwelt among my own people. I didn't ask for that. And haven't we all been there from time to time? Because out of the abundance of the heart, the mouth speaks. All she could speak was pain. That's what we do sometimes, even in the, with our loved ones, our friends, our family. We'll be upset about something and we'll gripe more about being upset than just telling them what they did to upset you. I feel like I'm the only one that got problems in here. She lost all hope. I had lost all hope. But God showed me a couple of things through that process. He showed me through the Shunammite woman that he allowed that person to come back into my life, not to destroy me, but to restore me, to restore my hope. Because honestly, I had lost hope of happily ever after. But God showed me just by bringing, allowing him to come back into my life that it was still there. That I still wanted that. That I still wanted the companionship. That I still wanted the love. Because I had convinced myself that that's the greatest love of my life. And I didn't need anything else. <laughs> he loves that. He loves that. But God needed to show me that he hadn't forgotten about me. That he hadn't forgotten about what I don't talk to anybody about. He knows about it. He was showing me a glimpse that the same way that person came sauntering back into my life, he could bring somebody else. Because I had given up on that. 
honestly. You know, you get to a certain age or you're meeting as creeps and you're like, good Lord. All the good ones are married. You know, we say that. All the good ones are married. Every time I meet somebody, he's some kind of mental defective. No offense, whoever's watching online. Or otherwise unavailable. But I had to open my heart again to the possibility. I had to trust God to do it and stop trying to supply my own needs. Amen? Because that's what you do. When the thing isn't coming, you're like, I'll settle for this one, I'll settle for that one. And it never works. God shuts those doors. And on another note, you don't have to worry. When something good comes into your life, you don't have to worry if it's the enemy or if it's God. Because God says in his word that what the enemy meant for evil, he will turn it to his good. And if it's not for you, you're going to know quick enough. So you can read the rest of the verses yourself. It's 29 through 37. I recommend it. It's a very good story. But long story short, he returns with her. And he heals the child, raises him from the dead. Everybody lives happily ever after, and they ride off into the sunset, essentially. (laughs) Well, she was at home already, so she's not riding off anywhere, but you know what I mean. So how do we keep hope alive? This is what we can learn from the Shunammite woman. First, speak the God, God's word over your hopeless situation. Speak life to the situation. Know his promises for your life. And remember, the only thing that can be facts is truth, the truth of God's word. Facts change all the time. A minute ago I was sitting there, now I'm up here. Facts change all the time. God's word remains. And you have to kind of make up your mind if you're going to meditate on the problem or the problem solver, the limitations of your circumstances or the possibilities. Just because God hasn't done it doesn't mean he won't do it. If he put the desire in your heart, it's there for a reason. God wants us to be happy. He wants us to be fulfilled. He wants to give us the desires of our heart. And number two, be careful who you share your hopes with. You have to protect your hopes and dreams and only share them with people who of faith who will stand with you and pray with you until that thing manifests. Amen? Amen. Take action. That's the third thing. Go straight to the source. She went to the man of God. In our situation, it's praying. It's taking it straight to God. Before you tell your girlfriends, before you tell anybody else, go to God with it first, please. Pray. Side note. She was only able to go to the prophet on an off day because they were in relationship. I'll say that again. I don't think some of you caught that. She was only able to go to the man when she wasn't supposed to because of their relationship. God wants a relationship with you. You are his child. He created you in his image. But it's not a relationship if both of you are not participating, if you're not acknowledging him as your God and your father. Our children can ask us for anything in the world that they want to, and if we have it, we freely give it, don't we? It's the same thing with him and us. 
He gives us the desires of our heart. And it's never too late. It's never too late to have a relationship with our Lord and Savior. He wants that. If you don't have one with him, please do not leave here today without one. And lastly, be relentless. Be desperate. Never stop. Don't give up. Be persistent. I've seen some of you on the phone with customer service people insisting on some kind of refund. I know you can be relentless. I'm just saying. Or at the car dealership when they're trying to rob you. I've seen some of you in action. So I know you can be relentless. I know you can be persistent. Start being persistent about the things that God has for you. God responds to desperation. And with, when di- disappointments come, and they will, pick yourself up and keep going, believing and standing on the promises of God. He is willing to do exceedingly abundantly above all you could ask or think. If you won't give up on your kids, why do you give up on yourself? Why do you give up on God? We believe so big for our kids, but we can't do it for ourselves. We somehow feel like we're not worthy or it's selfish or there's enough prayer time for everything. You could pray for yourself. You could pray for your kids. It's like the only time mothers can get motivated is when something's happening to our kids. But we can't get motivated with ourselves and our needs and our wants and our desires and our dreams and our hopes. You have to fight and never give up. You have to keep hope alive in order to thrive. And for those of you who don't know what to hope for, after service, we're giving away books in the back that contain a thousand promises of God. Please go and get one. It's for all the visiting mothers today and whatever's left, everybody else can have. Find the promise in there and cling to it. I can't believe that everybody know that there's somebody in here who doesn't hope for something, but in case that's you, I got you books. I'm all about books. I'm like, there's a book? Where? There's a book? That's me. I love books. My son just got me a book for Mother's Day that I love. I see Brenda back there. Brenda's with me on that. She's a book geek. Except she likes e-reader things. I like paper, but... And I want to leave you with this. Sacrificing for our kids and our family is honorable. There's nothing wrong with being unselfish, loving, and putting others' needs ahead of our own. That's love. We're supposed to do that. We're Christians. But there has to be balance. It's like when you're on a plane and they tell you if the cabin pressure drops and that oxygen thing comes on and you're traveling with a small child... They say put it on yourself before you put it on the child because if you pass out, you can't help your child. Well, it's the same thing with hope. Hope breathes life. If you're not hoping for yourself, how are you going to instill that hope for your children? How are you going to be any good to anybody if you're not living to your fullest potential? Kids learn better by showing than telling. You can tell kids all you want all the day long. If you're not living it and doing it, if they're not seeing you getting up every day and fighting that good fight, they're not going to learn how to fight that good fight. I want everyone to take a moment right now and close your eyes and think about that thing you want more than anything or that thing that you lost or that disappointment you experienced that rocked you.
Everyone got it? Good, hold on to that for a few minutes. Can somebody help me with the podium? Imagine what would happen in our families, in our church, if we all decided to hope and dream big and never give up. There's nothing we couldn't accomplish. God doesn't want us to just survive. He wants us to thrive. If you're here today, God wants to do something for you. He wants to restore your hope. He wants to answer that prayer. He wants to bless you today. Would you allow him to do that for you? Would you allow him to do that for you? Please stand to your feet. Pray with me, please. Dear Heavenly Father, I give you every area of my heart. I give you my questions, my disappointments, my doubts, and my fears. I choose to trade my sorrow for your joy. I choose to press past the mountains of my emotions so that I can embrace the promises you have in store for me. Restore my hope, Lord. In Jesus' name, amen.